It's a joy to be able to stand before you again uh, in order to preach the gospel. This afternoon, my mind has settled on a passage of scripture from Romans chapter 8, and I'd like to notice with you in the beginning, verse 18, the Apostle Paul would say, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, the apostle acknowledges that there is suffering in this world. And there is. We've all seen suffering. We've also suffered some ourselves, and we've seen people suffer with all kinds of diseases and tragedies. But Paul would say, I reckon the sufferings, plural, of this present time, and that's this present life, we're here in time. You know, time is a part of the creation. Before time, there was eternity, which was not measured by days and years. It was just eternal. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning of what? Not in the beginning of God, because he is eternal, but in the beginning of time. And we are creatures of time. And we measure our days on earth by time. We celebrated birthdays out in the dining room. And by the way, birthdays are good for you. You can't live long without them. (laughs) But we are here in time. And while we're here in time, there's a lot of suffering in this world. So Paul acknowledges that we are in a world of suffering. But he says we need to keep the sufferings of this present time in connection with eternity. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. You know, sometimes we do a lot of comparisons on this earth. People will even compare their wounds with other wounds. (laughs) My wound is greater than your wound, or my suffering is greater than your suffering. We don't need to get into all that. There's enough suffering to go around, right? And by the way, either you're probably dealing with some problem right now, or one is coming your way, or you're just getting over one. (laughs) That's life, isn't it? But Paul says, I reckon there are no paradises on this earth. But we need to keep our sufferings in the context of this verse. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now, when is that going to take place? That's in the resurrection, when Jesus comes back and resurrects our bodies and glorifies them. Now, I'm looking forward to that the day when our bodies will be resurrected and glorified. Paul said to the Philippians, he said, our conversation or citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior who shall change our vile bodies and fashion them like unto his own glorious body. That's wonderful, isn't it? The brightest star in the Christian sky is the promise of his coming. And he's coming back. We don't know when. There's two things I know about the second coming. I know he's coming, but I don't know when. And anybody who 
indicates they know, you can just know they are misinformed. (laughs) But he would say, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So when Jesus comes back and these bodies are resurrected and all of our sufferings will be over and we will be in glorified bodies that will be eternal in heaven, then when we look back, if we are allowed to look back in time, whatever we went through here will seem like nothing compared to the glory that awaits for us. So we need to hear about heaven and the resurrection some, don't y'all? We need to hear about that. It helps to keep everything in context. So now, how, how are we going to heaven? How are we going to get there? How are we going to reach that glorified state? Well, Paul tells us right here in Romans how God has worked all this out. And I want to look with you now in verse 28. Paul would say, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. In my personal belief, that verse is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good. Some people believe that word all embraces everything that happens on this earth. But we know that is not true. Notice what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 17. For the flesh, how many of y'all have a fleshly nature that you have to deal with? It's aggravating, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice just to pull it off and leave it at home when we come to church? (laughs) but we have to bring it with us. But Paul says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. If you're born again, you have two natures. You have a fleshly nature, which is sinful, and you have a spiritual nature, which is of God. And they don't get along with each other. Paul says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, Paul says the flesh and the spirit are contrary. How many of y'all would agree with that? You get up on Sunday morning and your spirit wants to go to church and your flesh just wants to roll over and go back to sleep. That's what they call holy rollers, you know. They wake up on Sunday morning and they think, you know, I just don't feel good today. And that aspirin that works wonders on Monday morning just doesn't work on Sunday morning. So they roll over and go back to sleep. That's the flesh. But your spiritual nature wants to get up, get dressed, and go to the house of God. They are contrary the one to the other. Now, can you say that two things that are contrary to each other are working together? No. No. (laughs) He says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What are the all things that work together for good? Well, I can tell you it's not your flesh. It's not what the devil does. 
is not wicked things going on in our world? What are the all things that are working together in perfect harmony? They're right here in our context. Let's notice beginning in verse 28 again. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow. The first thing Paul mentions in the context. And by the way, beloved, if you're a serious student of the Bible, you know that context is very important. You can take verses out of context and prove about anything. Did you know you can take the Bible and prove there is no God? The Bible says there's no God, but it's the fool that says that. So you've got to leave it in its context. Are you all with me? Now, what is the context? Paul would say, for whom he did foreknow. The first thing that's going to be working together for our good is the fact that God foreknew us. Not what he foreknew, but whom he foreknew. And when did he foreknow us? Before the foundation of this world. You and I can't go back that far. But God can because he was back there. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now that's going back before time into eternity and God was doing something on behalf of his family even before time began. He chose us in Christ out of all nations and families and religions and languages of the earth for whom he did foreknow. And that word foreknow means that he loved them. He foreloved them in Christ. For whom he did foreknow, he also did what? predestinate. Now that's an interesting word, predestinate, and it's a, it's a beautiful word if you understand it. The word pre is a prefix, and the word destiny is where you end up. Did you know that God beforehand predetermined the final destiny of all of his elect? God did that. You and I can't predestinate. We can plan I planned to come up here last year, but I didn't get to come. My plans were overthrown due to sickness. But God, when God predestinates, you can go ahead and put it in the history book because it's coming to pass. He's sovereign. How many of y'all believe in a sovereign God? Or y'all believe in a God that needs us to help him? <laughs> when God created the universe, he did it all right by himself. He didn't make man to come in and help him or the angels. He did it right by himself. And when it comes to salvation, which is a greater work than creation, he did it all by himself. He predetermined the final destination of all of his children. And I feel safe in that. What about y'all? What if it's left up to me? I could stumble and fall. For whom he did predestinate them, he also called. Now, the word call there is an interesting word. It doesn't mean like me saying, hey, Brother Mike, calling Brother Mike audibly or calling him on the telephone. I might call him and get a busy signal or he looks and sees it's Sam and doesn't answer. <laughs> or maybe the phone's dead. That's not an effectual call, is it? But let me tell you, when God calls his children, it is an effectual call. 
When he called Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road, did he get an answer? He didn't get a preacher to call him. God called him on the Damascus road, and it was an effectual call. Saul was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and imprisonment and maybe execution. But Jesus met him on the Damascus road and called him and said, Saul, Saul. Was that an effectual call? He didn't call at him. He got the call through, didn't he? And he called me when I was about 14 years old. He probably called Brother Mike when he was young. A lot of you were got the call when you were young. Let me tell you, it's an effectual call. And what happens when God calls? He calls you out of death and sin into life in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't come through the preacher, the mama, the daddy. No, it comes through God's sovereign voice. Jesus says the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall what? Live. And then he says, whom he called, them he also justified. Now, what does the word justify mean? Well, a simple definition I think that would be scriptural is he makes you just as though you never sinned. How many sinners in the house this morning, this afternoon? <laughs> well, I see a lot of hands going up, but I know you're all sinners. You're just like me, you're a sinner. But to know that you have been justified as though you have never sinned. And who justified us? He justified us. And whom he justified, them... I tell you, when you're doing your Bible study tonight, look at Romans 8 and see me how many times the word them is used in these verses. The same number that he foreknew is the same number that he predestinated. And the same number he predestinated is the same number he called. And the same number he called is the same number he justified. And the same number he justified, he's going to glorify now, Paul speaks of our glorification in the past tense. Whom he justified them, he also glorified. Now, you and I know we're not glorified today. We're still in these mortal bodies. We have our aches, our pains, our sins that we have to deal with. But let me tell you, when God has promised to glorify us, you can go ahead and put it in the history book because it's coming to pass. How many of y'all believe that? If God promised it, it's coming to pass. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. I, I'm here to tell all of us this morning, that, or this afternoon, that no matter what faces us in this world, and it could be cancer, it could be heart trouble, it could be dementia, we may end up in a nursing home, we may end up bedridden. I don't know what our end is here, but I know where we're destined to go, and that's to a glorified heaven. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm glad he described heaven as the Father's house. I always felt safe in the Father's house. Well, we're going to heaven. And Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions, not tents, not rooms, mansions. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he did. He, he came down from that upper room conversation and went to Calvary and gave his 
precious blood to pay for our sins, preparing a place for us in glory. And he said, if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, ye may be also. That's where we're going, children. We're going to the Father's house in glory. Now, Paul can speak of it in the past tense. Now, I have referred to this, and I've heard others refer to it as the golden chain of salvation. Five links in the chain. Let's look at the five links this afternoon. The first link is God's foreknowledge of his children. The second link in this golden chain is his predestinating them to be conformed to the image of his son. The third link in the chain is God's sovereign effectual call of his children from death and sin to life in Christ. The fourth link in the chain, do y'all remember what it is? Justification. And the fifth link in the chain is glorification. Now, here's five links in this chain. I like to illustrate this by sharing a story my wife and I had, had an experience we had many years ago in Birmingham. We were, live, we were renting this house in Birmingham, and it had a beautiful view of a mountain on the back porch. And Nelda wanted a swing to put out there on the back porch so we could enjoy the view. And uh, we had this man to build us a swing, a porch swing, and he brought it over and he hung it. And he sat down in it, you know, to make sure everything was right. And you know what? The chain broke <laughs> and down came the man. He was very embarrassed. He said, I've never had that to happen before. It only took one weak link in that chain for the swing to come down. You know how strong a chain is? It's no stronger than its weakest link. Isn't that right? All right. Here's five links in the golden chain of salvation. God foreknowing us, God predestinating us, God calling us, God justifying us, and God glorifying us. Now let's put another link in the chain just for a moment. Let's put your free will in there or your good works or your remaining faithful. That's a link in the chain. How dependable you reckon that link is? That's going to weaken the whole chain. But I'm here to tell you all this afternoon about the golden chain of salvation. It's all of God from beginning to end. You're saying, Pastor, I don't play a role in it. No, thank God. <laughs> I don't play a role in it. It's all of God. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, Y'all remember one of the last statements he made at Calvary? He said, it is finished. It is finished. What was finished? What he came to do. And what did he come to do? Well, the angel told us in Matthew 1.21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He didn't come to try to save us. He didn't come to make a way of salvation. He didn't come to do his part and then we got to do our part. The Bible says he came to save his people. Who were his people? The ones he foreknew before the foundation of the world. And that's not a little handful. Let me tell you, God's family is as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand by the sea. An innumerable host will be in heaven by grace and grace alone. Paul would say, I reckon the sufferings of this present time. And Paul knew what it was to suffer. 
Paul had been beaten with the Roman lash on a number of occasions, the cat of nine tails. And a man trained with the cat of nine tails knew how to plant that whip on a naked back and then jerk it. And the flesh would fly everywhere and the blood would splatter. Paul was beaten and scourged by the Roman whip and he was beaten by rods. He was stoned in Lystra and left for dead. This man knows what suffering is. He was shipwrecked. He was in prison. And yet Paul said, it's but a light affliction while we look. See, you've got to keep your eye on heaven. And that really is the secret, isn't it? Let's come down now. Paul would say, what shall we then say to these things? What are we going to say about foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification? Paul asked the question, what shall we then say to these things? These things that are working together for our good with perfect harm. What are we going to say? I'm going to say amen. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say, now God, you didn't do that right. <laughs> You should have included me in there to help you. No, Paul said, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And I believe God is for us. If he foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and is going to glorify us, I conclude he's for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? I remember preaching on that one time years ago down at Tired Creek Church, and there was a little boy on the front row named Ovid. And I quoted that verse a number of times for emphasis. If God be for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? And little Ovid said, the devil can. <laughs> well, I want to tell you all this afternoon, the devil would like to tear up God's plan. And he is against us, but he can't tear up what God has done. Can y'all rejoice in this? If God be for us, who can be against us? Let's come down to verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, Paul is going to take us back to what it cost God to save us. He that spared not his own son. See, his son was with him in heaven for all eternity, but there was a need for a savior and angels couldn't do it, men couldn't do it. So the son said, I'll go, Father. I'll go down there and I'll, I'll take man's sin and bear it in my body. You know, on Mount Moriah, God asked Abraham to give his son Isaac to prove Abraham's love for God. And Abraham loved God, and he was going to take his son's life. God stayed his hand and didn't allow it. But at Calvary, God gave his son to prove his love for us. He that spared not his own son. If you think your life has been hard, and some of us do, you don't know what you've been spared. There's no telling what God has been sparing us all our lifetime. How many traffic accidents? How many things has God spared us? We'll never know. But he didn't spare his son. 
He that spared not his own son. Oh, my soul. I wish I could tell it where y'all could get it. He that spared not his own son. How many in the house today who have children would give one of your children to die for somebody else? You may love people. You would visit them in the hospital. You would change a, help them change a flat tire. You know, we love people, but we don't love anybody that much. How did God love us so much that he would give his only son? Blows my mind. Beyond comprehension, Paul would say. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It wasn't Pilate or Judas that delivered him up. It was the father. They couldn't have laid a finger on him if God hadn't delivered him up. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him give us all things? And then... Who shall lay anything, verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What prosecuting attorney is going to stand up in God's courtroom and charge one of the elect? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but he's been kicked out. <laughs> who lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It won't be me. Notice what the Bible says. It is God that justifieth. Wow. And who is it that he's justified the elect? Who is he that condemneth? Who's going to condemn the elect? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to charge us? Who's going to condemn us? Who's going to separate us? Nobody. God wants you with him in heaven. And he sent his son down here to see to it that your sin debt was paid. And he paid it all. And Paul closes this chapter with one of my favorite. You know, it depends on what day it is or what my favorite verse is. <laughs> right now, my favorite verse in the Bible is right here. And I'll close with this. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall ever be able to what? Separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if nothing can separate us from the love of God, I don't think anything can separate us from God. Those he loves, he will have with him in glory. So just remember, when you're suffering down here, just put it in the framework of what's waiting on you on the other side. And you might just find yourself rejoicing in God our Savior. Amen.